Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. And that's what this episode is about, a conversation. We're going to get right to it with uh, Anthony Blake, uh, a Gurdjieffian teacher and writer that I had the good fortune to encounter through a mutual friend. He's author of The Intelligent Enneagram and uh, the wonderful sounding Gymnasium of Beliefs and Higher Intelligence, which we will be talking about. So with no further ado, Anthony, uh, will you introduce yourself? My name is Anthony Blake. I'm the research director of the non-for-profit uh, organization, the Duversity, a very strange name, but it contains the ideas of universality and diversity. And I'm talking with Eric Davis, an extraordinary writer from the West Coast of America. My background starts in, in physics, which was my first love. And it gave me a chance to meet up with that extraordinary man, David Bohm, the, the physicist, and other extraordinary men afterwards, who, amongst whom I will uh, include uh, John Bennett, who was one of the main pupils of the extraordinary spiritual teacher, George Gurdjieff. So I had these two strong influences in my life. And since then, I've been exploring the ramifications of this. And like anybody else in this time period concerned with you know, what is true, how can we understand each other, what's happening to us, are we in control of anything, and all these various sorts of, of deep questions. The main, well, I could only say the main kind of axis of my approach in various methods and searches of epistemology and knowledge and so on is centered on dialogue. And this is a dialogue which was fostered by David Bohm, even though it has its roots in Plato and all of that. And it's around this idea that there is some process by which what is between us can become articulated. And I'll just add here one of the slogans of one of my mentors in dialogue, Patrick de Murray, who always insisted that what he called mind was not in brains, but between brains. And I've taken this absolutely literally and found it an inspiration. So in various avenues, I'm exploring this. And as part of it, of course, writing books, as probably Eric knows, writing books is a kind of yoga. And because there is a need or some kind of intrinsic sense that articulating uh, what is within us matters. Uh, and I'll have to end with one of my favorite quotes, which was from Ezra Pound, when he translated the Confucian Analects, and he ends with a wonderful sort of couplet saying, what, when he's searching for the origins of what is order and meaning, and he said, it is to render into words the inarticulate, the still tones of the heart. And that's what I feel I'm trying to do. That's, Over to you, Eric. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. There's so many, uh, so many resonances there because, you know, one of the things I do on my podcast, which is one of the main things that I do now as a public intellectual writer guy, uh, is what I call cultures of, con of uh, conversation. And I'm interested in how conversation or dialogue opens up something that's very different than an interview. And, you know, sometimes it becomes kind of an interview. You wrote a book. I'm going to ask you about your book. 
but there's always a space or an invitation for something else to kind of happen. And uh, I've had a little bit of experience with with formal dialogue. We were using some techniques from Bohm, some drawn from other sources, some of the people uh, that I did it with. Just unfortunately, sort of briefly, the book, uh, the group kind of dissolved. Uh, but uh, it it really blew my mind, and I'm you know I've been looking for uh, more work like that. Uh, the the there's because there's a yoga of articulation in writing. Absolutely, I'm I'm blessed and cursed with that drive. Mm-hmm. If I if I haven't been writing in in too long, I kind of feel like everything's getting sort of just mucky and unclear it's not That's like right, it? you start feeling ill <laughs> you know yeah and I, I so it's part of healing and you know maybe it's also partly of you know there's a neurotic element to writing too but <laughs> but you know that's that that's the grit and the pearl uh but there's something else that happens in, in articulation in conversation in unscripted conversation uh per, particularly in front of people i mean i was just um doing a guest lecture in a, in a class that a, a friend of mine is teaching on music. And they read a book of mine about Led Zeppelin and we were talking and, and I forgot I hadn't been in a situation where I was sort of open to questions and you know, you never know what you're going to get. And I love the, uh, the spontaneity of watching what comes out of one's own mouth in relationship to a question that you've never gotten before and you're like wow that's great that's not me i mean it is me but it's not me so i love i love all that you're talking about in the the course of your of your own uh exploration really fascinates me particularly because this is like one place that i I, i'm i'm really curious because i think a lot about this issue of teachers versus mm. in spirituality or psychospirituality or in personal growth and, and even in intellectual growth, the difference between teachers, which is sort of a more traditional model, and a more uh, horizontal, conversational, dialogic, uh, meshwork kind of model. Uh, and, you know, as far as I can tell, I don't know that much about the Gurdjieff work, but I know a fair amount about the history and I've read, you know, some of the books and things uh, that he was, you know, he was very much teacher with a capital T. And it sounds like Bennett as well, though he fostered a very multidimensional, multi-discourse, you know, he was, he was a very rich uh, thinker. And so he loved lots of different kinds of discourses. He was still very much like the man in in a lot of ways, as far as I can tell. So what I'm curious is you coming out of that tradition, how did you come to your own ways of thinking about the difference or the different strengths and weaknesses of teachers versus a more dialogic, let's explore horizontal kind of path which is what i sense is more your 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 love at this point in your in your your own process well that's i starting with the uh one of the big big questions and my god this is so exciting you see um i was i think i was very fortunate there was you know particular features in one's life and particular accidents and combinations which flavor everything and not to do with one's wisdom or anything else like that. And I was very uh, young when I came across Bennett, I was about 19, 
something like that. And my interest, as I said, was in, in physics. And I'd come across the ideas of Gurdjieff from Colin Wilson in his famous book, The Outsider, and picked up on it and eventually got to see the man himself. But what was happening in me was, was this sense of, uh, almost I could say a fear of the unknown, uh, like you and many people maybe watching this will say they go along in ordinary society, they grew up it and they feel something's wrong. People are faking it. They don't know what they're doing. In fact, it's all a show. And where is it? You look within and there's like this void and there's nothing and there's no answers there. There's nothing laid on. And there are those people who've got tablets of stone and blueprints, but you turn not to trust them. <laughs> this kind of thing. Uh, so it went on. So you think one thing about Ben now, Next thing to get on to, which I always appreciated, he had a scientific background. Now that matters a great deal because he had actually some concrete understanding of evidence and theory, <laughs> the difference between the two. And he was also capable of changing his mind and learning and so on. Uh, and we were fortunate, um, he was wanted to develop his own ideas, which were in this book, The Nomadic Universe, but he wanted to do it in a way which he had carried over from his work, which was in managing scientific research. So he's used to being with people who are creative, you see, not just students, but equals. And so he treated those young people like equals. And we have these discussions, you know, these free-flowing discussions about, about things. But at the same time, as is, just as you say, he was being the master, and he had hundreds of people coming, coming to groups. Now, I also saw that... Uh, how do they in these groups which are being run and where there was somebody in charge and information being passed over and a certain kind of hierarchy and all of that that it uh, reached a certain level and mr bennett himself was always after what was the next step what was the, the better step and he'd try and invent new things for the groups to do and new kinds of groups and all the rest of it. And i began to realize it was this was not the point and the whole thing was the setting of groups was what was mistaken. Uh, and I asked him about this. I, I won't go on too much longer because I don't want to hog the, the, the space here. I even asked him personally about this particular question. I don't know if you, you, you probably know Gurdjieff's idea about Kundabapa. But it's I just all for you to explain. Okay. He, he claimed in his mythological book, um, Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson, that the higher powers implanted this organ at the base of the spine to uh, distort our perception, in fact, to see reality upside down, because there was a fear that if mankind was aware of its function in the planetary system, which was to feed the moon, they would be so desperate that they commit suicide and the whole thing would break down. So you had to plunge man into illusions so he would stay alive and not commit suicide. And then they found out this was perhaps not a good idea and took the organ away, but we got used to it as so we carried on doing that. And I said to Mr. Bennett, um, is there such a thing as a kunterbuffer for groups? Because I've tried experience with groups, you get groups together, no kind of authority, and they're useless, nothing. It falls apart. Nothing, nothing gets anywhere. They get in each other's way and so on. Is there a way? And he admitted he didn't know. 
And I found out, following that up, that in the spiritual work, the other spiritual groups, they knew very little about group psychology, group process, or anything like that. And so later on, I was lucky to have a conversation with Charles Tart about this. So there it was, this man who I adored and loved, who had these wonderful conversations with, who developed these incredible ideas. I was on this path of wanting to take what he had in the sense of next step, and say the next step had to involve uh, suspending the, the hierarchy and the systems. It maybe it was needed to bring people to a certain point, and then perhaps I make this try and make this the final point because I'm bursting with wanting to explain to you about everything. It's, it's rather like you see in Gurdjieff's books he wrote three major books. He also was chose to his grandson, a whole cosmological mythology, you see. Then second was meetings with remarkable men. And the third one, life is only real than when I am, corresponds to what I call the European tradition of the confessions. It's very, very extraordinary. But the second one was all about working with others. It was a group of friends. And I hooked on that and I said, well, Let's say we are the remarkable men and get it on. Yeah. So that's, that's where I am. I, I, I better stop because no, I should. No, no. Well, I, I mean, I, of course, would just love to, to hear you go on. But, I, you know, I, I've, I have thought about this a lot um, I, because uh, there's a lot of reason to look at the creative edge of human culture and not even just human culture, but the way in which we as sort of thinking, responding uh, subjectivities are woven into the world, to look at that in terms of friendships, interactions, connections, wet meshworks, rhizomes, not trees, hierarchies, mountains, all these sort of older archetypes. Uh, and so that kind of runs into this issue with spirituality because so much of spirituality takes this form of a master-student discipleship. We see it repeating again and again. One thing that I think of is, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, anthropologically at early human uh, groups and even some uh, gr uh, groups today, tribes that, that practice um uh, certain kinds of uh, nom like nomads where they they get together and they have all their cattle and they move across the, the pass to get to the low pastures, you know, in the winter and then they go back. And if you look at other groups that have these kinds of uh, focused necessity for leadership, what happens often is that there's a it's it's a pretty loose scene. Then there's the need to lead the group over the pass to the pasture. And so then a hierarchy appears. The hierarchy is temporary. And so for a period of time, there's a leader who has to command and control and organize people. And then you get somewhere and it dissolves. So it's not about completely destroying hierarchy. It seems like more a kind of uh, allowance. And even in a conversation among equals... Uh, or among scientists, let's say, when you're giving your spiel, you know, I'm, you kind of rise a little bit. You've got some wisdom and background that I don't have. And it's actually clearer to let you sort of 
go up for a spell. And then maybe we start asking questions and then you kind of go down. So it's it's more like, you know, people going like mm. this rather than like absolute flatness because that's a problem too. You know, people get in these sort of political groups or anarchic groups, whatever, and they're so, they hate hierarchy so much that oh. they can't get it going. And so everything is consensus, everything is flat, everything is, and, and it creates its own kind of neuroses and, 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 and poor power games. So it feels like it's a very subtle thing to do, but one of the wonderful things about conversation or groups of friends exploring a shared topic is that that kind of movement is easier to happen because there's already an emotional sort of sense of good humor yes. and goodwill. Yes. That's right. I mean, you're just jumping in here. Interesting, just the accident of language, you started going flat, as a flat, and it's got the connotations of being flat. <laughs> um, because, of course, the... Uh, its intelligence begins from contrast, from difference. And you can have that kind of flat with everybody's nice and agreeing and so on. It's not worth going there at all. It's just too tedious for words. But you get this, I'm going to scatter with various things now, like the, I've got this obsession about um, groups and hierarchy and some sort of aphorisms about it. One of my favorite aphorisms is say that when you join a group, you lose half your will. <laughs> because it's, it's put into the structure, you see. And to belong to the group, it's actually literally true. I won't defend it quite now at this point, because you could probably argue with it. Now, second thing I want to put in is I got from my friend Gordon Lawrence, who was in the Social Dream Matrix. You may have looked at my um, conversation with him. And he adopted it from some of his friends, which was to say that conversation is typified by two kinds of what he calls politics. And he talks about the politics of salvation and the politics of revelation. And this is slightly strange terminology. Politics of, salva of salvation is when there is a leader, where there is authority, where there is a consultant, whether there is a problem solver, whether there is the divine being, whatever it is, who comes into the group and saves them, who leads them, and all this kind of thing. But the politics of revelation is when the people are able to articulate from amongst themselves, and this corresponds to what I say, mind being between brains. Yeah. Now, the third thing I say is, Mary Marco Men, the thing about the people on the same level, which was a strong thing for Patrick DeMari, who told me about dialogue and so on, you have to be on the level. But I suddenly realized this is the most aristocratic state possible. Because it's only the ultimately, in a sense, the best who can be on the level. In ordinary life, you never get it. So it, it turns on its head. Actually, to do this horizontal thing, you have to become the most utmost elite. Uh, that's hilarious. Yes, you're very, you're very right. You know, people forget. I mean, I think on the level isn't used as much as it once was in, in kind of casual speech, but we still hear it. And of course, that level, it's a, it's a direct uh, Masonic reference. And, you know, the, the oh. issue of, uh, of, you know, it's the level. So it's, it's, you know, you're in the club, you're in the wink wink, you know. And, and, that, and that's a funny thing when you look at um, 
uh, societies, whether they're secret societies or, you know, fraternal organizations or however you want to call them, is that you see this combination of hierarchy and, but, but driving towards some kind of desire or dream of a nice fraternal flatness where we're all together, there's no hierarchy anymore, but it requires so much hierarchy to kind of make that, uh, you know, make that happen. You know, I think about, um, I was just talking about the Bohemian Grove the other night, and that's this sort of gathering of men, of, of, of powerful men from around the world, different countries, different politics, uh, music, whatever, and it happens here in California. And some conspiracy oh. theorists are very like, oh, this is like the dark side, and they have some strange <laughs> ritual, and they do actually have some curious rituals. Uh, but my interpretation of, of it always was that it was a place where people who have to carry, whether whatever you whether you think they're monsters or not, in their ordinary life, they have to carry so much, such a burden of power of making decisions that have huge influences, of always being seen, of, of not being able to make a mistake. And they go together and then they can just basically just get drunk mm. and party and be with their, their buddies. Because you can't do that, even at the country club. You have to create some very strange structure to kind of get relief, <laughs> you know, that, that way. But we're on that side of that. I don't want that thing. I don't want to be inside of a you know, secret society. I don't want to be inside of a hierarchy where you finally get that i want that open sort of democratic uh you know like you say it's never on the level it's always kind of um revised and and made up uh as you go along i just i wanted to say one other thing about uh about science you know you i think that that you mentioned bennett's uh not just interest in science but experience with scientific practice and i think that's a when, when people talk about spirituality and science, often they, 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 they think of science as like a set of principles about the world or a, a set of right. ideas. And they go, oh, well, how spirituality go with quantum physics? And quantum physics tells us this, where, whereas what's really important is the method of science. Constant inquiry, fallibility of, of theory in relationship to evidence, a great respect for empiricism, a knowledge that you, you can use evidence that other people have, but you got to kind of vet it in other groups and that groups of people with, with similar values are extremely important to help vet things. That's the stuff that we really need, I think, as seekers, as people interested oh, in a larger view, more than oh. ideas about quantum physics, ideas about cosmology. Those are great. You know, let's let's go for it. But it's that feel. And, and I really sense from learning more about Bennett, partly talking to you, just as and just the whole idea of, of how you run a university like situation, how you approach different kinds of knowledges is, is committed to that idea that that you need to have a kind of group inquiry that's going on where I'm, I am responsible for my own inquiry. I'm taking it seriously. Um, I'm earnest about it. I'm serious about it. I'm self-critical about it. But I'm also part of a group because if it's just me, it's just solipsism, it's craziness, whatever. But if I'm part of a group, we can have that scientific uh, commitment even if we're not doing science exactly. Oh, oh this is so rich. It's first about equality. It's like the um, Pythagorean ideal, of course, in friendship, which 
entails this challenge of you see you can only have true friendship between equals so what is this equality and that's one of the art of friendship you know uh, it's not you can't take it for granted so that's one main thing now so that's something we're like in this conversation here we're engaging in this you know we you know it, it's it's as we you probably feel it as I do when you, you sort of get it right there is no not so much to you and me anymore. There's just a conversation. And that corresponds to what, as you probably know, Bohm was after in dialogue and translating as dia and logos, which means through meaning. It's not a, a chit-chat between two people. It's going through meaning, and you follow meaning. But the new thing I want to introduce, because I want to have some element which is going to connect out to your technosis, is, uh, and the demiurge, I want to bring in the demiurge in here, is one of Bennett's, uh, passions was higher intelligence. Now, very briefly to encapsulate what, what he had had in mind or may have had in mind is, is so hard, but it certainly had a religious base for him about this higher intelligence. And his constant reiteration was though, like in our world problems and situations, man can't solve them by himself. He needs this higher intelligence, so we've got to learn to communicate with higher intelligence. Now, he spoke about this not as a kind of uh, the usual flim-flam, you know, of uh, conversations with God or whatever it is, and you can get a, a suppose, into a trance and receive these messages. But this very important notion about different orders of intelligence, that was very important for him. And to say that there is a sort of vertical ecology going on and let me add uh, yeah, two ideas two ideas so i don't wrap it too much one was to say he got into this question what what is the body what sort of bodies does higher intelligence have and he said well their bodies are made of ideas ideas are their bodies they grow into their body which i just thought was a very neat idea you know you know this this uh, uh, kind of thing. Now, the other thing I want to throw into it to try to nudge towards technology is that he spoke about them using the old Greek term demiurge, you know, comes from Aristotle and Plato, which meant worker rather than angels and so on. As, and you know, the demiurge is, in a sense, I want to raise this image with you, is the um, archetypal engineer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the things I, I did in, in Technosis is kind of trace the, um, the, the mythic and even kind of mystical sort of implications of the engineer, which is such an important figure to modernity. It actually relates to masonry, you know, the level and the square, and it's all about engineering and the idea that you can engineer uh, a better world, a better society. And from where I come from, the kind of politics I've come from, the kind of background I come from, I'm very wary of that kind of demiurgic behavior because I'm much more on the the techno-critical side. And so I look at the history of Europe, let's say, as a, as a glorious wonder, a singular event in mankind's history, but the dark side of the engineering 
arrogance, the desire to, you know, make and control and to even make utopia, like we can do to utopia, is that it always it falls, it's always another kind of power game, and it has a, a very strong dark side. So it's funny, even the word demiurge, you know, if you know your Plato, you're like, that's the demiurge is the, the, the higher intelligence that created this um, extraordinary cosmos. But if you come from a more Gnostic background, the demiurge is the, is the ah. mischievous buffoon. Uh, and and I think, we're, <laughs> unfortunately, we're in the era of, of the, if, if we look at human society as being controlled by larger organizations, i.e. corporations, institutions, capital flows, massive technologies that are out of the control of any one group, that we return to kind of a demiurgic space, uh, but it's unfortunately more the the unpleasant buffoons than <laughs> the enlightening uh, cosmology uh, aligners, which I think we find more um in in nature so when just one more idea when you talk about higher intelligence that's an interesting topic i have a lot of thoughts about it i just wrote a book that was about people who thought they encountered high intelligence and what could this actually mean how can we understand it in a way that's that stays close to the to the earthy facts of the matter uh, but one place i think we really do see it is when you start to recognize the intelligence in nature the intelligence in anything from like a slime mold to a plant and the ways in which the more and more we know about how trees or forests operate, we, we you have to see them as intelligent in some sense. It doesn't mean the intelligence is in a brain in one part of the stem of one particular <laughs> plant. It means that there's some way in which the interaction itself stages or allows to emerge a kind of intelligence that involves multiple entities. And I think that's part of where we are is that we're pulled into all of these multiple entities and some of them are very nefarious. Some of them are technological. Those don't necessarily entirely overlap. Some of them are natural. Some of them are preternatural. That that this process of building does lead to effects and experiences that you can't entirely account for with a purely naturalistic uh, guise. But it's like everybody's out there clamoring for our attention. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how do you navigate? How do you navigate all the possibilities, the the disaster scenarios, the, the authorities, the arrogances, the different spiritual frameworks? Do you have a kind of... <laughs> logic do you do you go by intuition is it dreams is it spontaneity is what what are your tricks man <laughs> <laughs> well that's so much i mean I, i'm how can i just manage this situation where there's <laughs> in, in a flood you know that but i want to sort of insert something you hold on to that insert something which absolutely to say that um you know, just to remind people who may not be aware of it, in the Gnosticism, by and large, you say the demiurge is the false god. And and there's the appeal to wake up from the dream world which the false god creates. And it's so much like, you know, what's going on in certain aspects of technology and become aware of the real god behind it. And with it comes the technical notion that the, the demiurge is creative, but there's something beyond creativity. And for Bennett, this was a unitive energy or love or compassion. And 
Further, it's an interesting feature of the demiurge that in traditional societies, you see, the figure of the demiurge is the potter. Why the potter? Because the demiurge works with matter, which is already there. It doesn't work from nothing. Only the true God works from nothing. Yeah. That, that kind of thing. Then, oh, I was preparing, I've got a whole spiel to go on the Garden of Eden and why this relates to the Matrix. And <laughs> It's just endless, man. <laughs> it is endless. But you ask this, this practical question, and it is, um, it goes, well, for me, it goes back to my, my subjective history to the first question I asked Mr. Bennett. And, you know, eager young chap carrying his Beelzebub's tails, going down to see the great man. At that time, the great man was living in his place, which was being taken over by this spiritual movement, Subud. And so he was just writing his books and just kind of uh, hanging around. And he was coming, poor man was coming, i uh, tell the story, coming up to his lunch and I ambushed him. Mr. Bitter, Mr. Bitter, I have one question. And I thought, I'm going to ask him a very big question. So I said, Mr. Bennett, Mr. Bennett, what is original sin? I said, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I'll get my money's worth with that, you see. And it was so interesting, his reply, because he had this practice. It was part of his own spiritual practice. No matter what idiot came up to him, whatever stupid question, he would stop and listen. This was his own practice. I, he was amazing. His patience was extraordinary and wait and come and so he said and this was surprising he said it is really to uh, fail to do what you can do and to try and do what you cannot do and this has stayed with me because uh, if you look towards this realm of can I've found the best sort of guide uh, in this respect and it's quite a good guy because in our present world, you know, everybody's full of what the answers are and what you should do and shouldn't do and all this kind of thing. You see, very little attention about can. And this theme of can is very strong, what we call the fourth way, because Goethe put it as say, you say, you, you, you wish to be a Christian. That's fine, you wish to be a Christian, but are you able to be a Christian? Because you have to be able uh, and you have to begin to learn pragmatically to learn what are you able to do and there was a wonderful passage from one of my heroines i don't know if you know about simon vale uh where she says what is it do not act above the level of your virtue if you do you poison <laughs> you get this poison so my direction is all around this what can i do and it was represented by a friend of mine, in the, actually he was a, the key engineer in the Biosphere 2 project, which you might get into. And uh, he talked about a meeting in which they have problems, they're going around what to do, what to rest of it. He said, well, um, in this situation, there are things that I can calculate. So I'm going to go away and calculate them and then come back. Now that for me was perfection. He wasn't solving problems, he was doing what he could do. And then he stops. That's the best answer I can give. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that idea of uh, well, thinking about uh, original sin and as as partly uh, an overleap beyond what you can do because that requires, um, you know, you have to have some self knowledge before you set yourself the the higher the higher goal. 
and also because we get into this so easy to get into the situation where you you set your goal just higher enough that you will always fall short and then you get into a kind of flagellating cycle of like missing the boat constantly and then it's you know sometimes and i think people sometimes go through their whole lives like that and then something shifts and they can look at what their actual life was like or what they could do was like what they did do was like and they see it in a very very different way because they're no longer constantly pulled to that level above and that's one of the hard things about I think contemporary society is that we have so much feedback so much of it fabricated uh, of that next level whatever it is the expertise the yoga mastery the non-dual consciousness the entrepreneurial and everybody's presenting these egos and you know I feel like a fool because when I wrote Technosis in the 90s you know, a lot of my friends and I were influenced by postmodernism. We kind of distrust the ideal of the individual. And we saw this this new technology of networks, of, of virtuality, of, of uh, more malleable senses of identity is that we were like, you know, the individual is going to get swallowed up by this really fast and something else is going to happen. But right now, it looks like it's all retrenchment. It's like even more ego, even more specific <laughs> self-identity, selfie, uh, you know, social media, uh, all the kind of fame mechanisms and likes and followers. And and it's not, <laughs> I'm like, come on, man. I didn't, I'm not getting the future. I, <laughs> I thought we would get, but I guess that's, uh, that's part of the, uh, part of the game as well. Sorry, I was just feeling, you know, we, we really need five hours uh, to begin, you know, kind of thing. But so to one of Bennett's things, he was um, you know, just part of his background. He, he could have become a, a, um, a Labour MP. He was, his orientation was socialist, you see, but he came from a sort of semi-aristocratic family like that. But he was into history, extraordinary historian, and had this theory of epochs and changes of epoch and so on. So he, Towards the end of his life, he came up with this scheme or into the synergic epoch. Now, let's point out to people, you've got to go back to the origin of that word. You know, the origin of the synergy was one time, about 12th century, I think, a heresy in Christianity because it claimed that man could actually contribute to his own salvation. It would be a partner with God on saving his soul. And the main part of the church, this was anathema because only God can save, you see. But then it came down through the ages to get both Mr. Fuller and Synergy as this working together. It's gone on the level. So his idea of the Synergy book has got taken up in terms of, you know, he gives examples like this, even the Communist Manifesto in 1858. Uh, and cooperation for people. And people get it wrong because that's nice. People are going to cooperate together. That's, 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 that's lovely. We'll, we'll build a kind of common mind and that sort of thing. But his thing about the Synergy which is very difficult to grasp, was that it was a cooperation between levels. And in this prime case, and it became his hobby even, <laughs> it was like to cooperate with higher intelligence. So it's not, we have a role, and that lot has a role, you see, but we can get it on together. Now this is, of course, quite weird, 
because it's <laughs> it's completely the vertical thing. And usually you get the sense of levels. The thing on the higher level, so to speak, absorbs the lower level, you know, over encompasses it and knows on the idea that we can have a level. But that's extraordinary part of Bennett's thing, and the thing Gurdjieff too, and that's why Bennett called his own book The Dramatic Universe. Because it's all risk-taking, hazard, uncertainty, and but it's like roles. You've got to play roles. And as was one of the saving graces, going back to groups and so on, I've held on to it very much. Never get into that position where you get stuck with being the leader or the pupil. It's a role. <laughs> Shift. Shift over. You know, it's like, your turn, you be the leader now. And it's not completely arbitrary because we used to do this. And I always said, if you're leading a group, you should never keep on just being the leader because something will rotten happen to you, this kind of thing. So that's to do with this cooperation and why I have this title for my forthcoming little seminar. I hope this will be part of a brave new world with these two senses of the words of Miranda in The Tempest, which has such creatures in it, which is joyful. Brave New World, Adolf Huxley, which is dystopia, you see. And uh, Bennett's thing. And, oh, I have to add one more thing. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling so embarrassed, I'm talking so much. I want you to talk about your stuff, you <laughs> oh, no, see. This is good. Because as a Christian, it's a very interesting part of Christianity. Um, Certainly not what's happening in the right wing in America and so on. That part of it, which he really believed is how you see things matters. And this has got nothing to do with being optimistic or pessimistic and so on. But though there is a remark to be made, as you know, there is almost a technical term, which I can't remember, of the tendency a lot of people have to always fixate on the negative, on the down, on the darkness. And he was always advocating a kind of perception which wasn't rose-tinted. But literally, as in the Bible, saw the good. But saw, it was a perception. And that was really what he wanted to develop in people. It doesn't matter whether they're happy or sad. That's irrelevant. Yeah. That, that's always been w one of my favorite aspects of, of some Christian thinkers, is a certain way of, of, of thinking and perceiving joy and goodness even in the midst of of dark situations and again not the rose-colored glasses approach but more the kind of uh the both the sort of humorous foolishness of human beings in all of their foibles but in the midst of that this kind of glowing potentiality or glowing essence and i think about that in terms of the difference between uh happiness and joy like i think the the quest for happiness the great american uh, shibboleth uh macguffin is <laughs> is, is uh, really more likely to cause its opposite it, at least it seems to certainly on a systemic level if you have a bunch of individuals seeking their happiness uh, they run roughshod over a lot of things on on their way, at least in the way we do it these days. But joy for me is a very different, has a very different quality um, that can coexist in the midst of very difficult situations or very uh, stark confrontations with other aspects of reality. And it's almost more of a kind of um, 
amazement and and a sort of sense of blessing that even in the midst of difficulty there is this kind of wondrous charge and again it's not at all rose tinted glasses mm-hmm. but it does have that those those elements that we also see in joyful situations in a more conventional sense and to me i think a lot of uh, spiritual work is to be able to generate enough joy to see through the illusions of pursuing happiness and have the capacity to turn and look and embrace greater and greater difficulties, both of our moment, of ourselves, of nature of existence. Some things look quite dark, some things are are scary, some things are even demonic. And yet we have sort of, we have that capacity to bring a kind of open-heartedness into those situations because we no longer think about happiness as the goal and yet we get this divine joy in the midst of it at least some of the time you know that that's that's the plan anyway i don't know how that is, know. <laughs> in one of his writings ben is said which was about values and so on the joy is the highest value of nature and it's something in joy, which is, you see, happiness is so much like a pers- uh, a human thing or a personal thing kind of thing, but joy, you know, the birds are joyful, the, the flowers are joyful, Wonderful, the sky yes. is joyful, isn't it, you know? And that's part of the, the, I think the release it gives us, Eric, you know, because we, we don't have to have it as ours. So we don't have to kind of tend because it, it's all around us. Yeah. Now, I see you're looking at the clock a bit. So, how much time you got? Like We're doing good. We're, I'll let you know. You let me know. <laughs> yeah, good, yeah. Well, I mean, that makes me think a little bit. Also, uh, you you made that wonderful point. I think it was Bohm about mind. It's not just I have a mind. You have a mind. It's mind is something that happens between that us. And it, it's Patrick tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Patrick tomorrow. Okay, excuse me. Uh, but that idea of a of a field. And being sensitive to this field that's that's surrounding us, rather than what we have in our skulls. And what's interesting about that idea is, is even some very reductionist, materialist brain scientists believe that. Even people who are like, it's all we're all just DNA robot meat machines, you know, trying to make sense of this thing. They'll go, you know, actually, mind is a distributed process. It's in our things, it's in our books, it's in our architectures, it's in our structure, it's in our language, it's in memory, which is not in here. And if we go looking for it in here, we're not going to find it. So even from a very kind of materialist in a philosophical sense perspective, there's reasons to think about mind as being something collective or something that emerges uh, between us. And that seems very much to be what the leading edge of evolution is calling us to kind of engage with now. And my hope is that we're just in this sort of last ditch, hyperactive, <laughs> egoic thing and, we and that we're going to burn it, burn through it before we burn ourselves up. Oh, man. But it gives this further thing to uh, describe what you see about how you strive for this independence or a younger individuation or virtue having your own eye, whatever it is. And that's the quest in itself, the spiritualization. But then the other thing is then when you've got them independent, then when they come together, they can make something together, which neither of the two would have thought of. It's an ordinary naive idea, but it's correct. It really is correct. We have this very common word used now about relationship, relatedness, but you go into that, the between 
uh, because in a way, in what's between is nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the it's like the that. liminal. So you can develop from so you know, there these differences and you get a gap. You don't run away from it. Oh, let's resolve our differences. No, you celebrate the differences. Yeah, it's a respect for the, the between, you know, and we don't use that word enough or that concept enough. You're right that we think of relationship. We go to that right away. But in a way, relationship is like two well-defined things that are that have a line between them. You've got but it. That's, that's, if we, if that. instead we kind of lean into the between, your, your between is maybe my between. It, it's maybe a third character. It's not yeah. so coherent as a relationship, which has its own laws or whatever. The between is... We don't know how close is it. I have betweens inside my own mind. I have betweens between people with other things with the cosmos, and there's there's something about there's some very uh, about the open endedness of the between that is really key. I think in this dialogic process. Now, Eric, what about considering the in between between us and machines? Is this isn't it becoming a not just a fantastic notion. There's some kind of simulation or appearance of sentience. Because, yeah. uh, of course, how it's being treated is, you know, there are these AI, this artificial intelligence evolving this way, and here are the people over here. But that's not really the situation, because the two of us are kind of changing. Yeah, in, it's true. And even if you... Yeah. And in fact, that's a, that's a really wise point because a lot of the roboticists and artificial intelligence folks that I know personally, partly because of my just my own background and people yeah. I've happened to know, a lot of them emphasize, as opposed to the kind of mainstream view where there are these great self-contained artificial intelligences are going to come down and make decisions for us, that that's a really false model. It's both dangerous politically, but also in a lot of ways, not really true. It's not really what happens. We're really in a situation of kind of augmentation or hybrids where yeah. human beings have, have to develop ways to interact with forms of intelligence that themselves ha are being organized in relationship to human beings. And you can be very dystopian about this stuff, but there is also yes. a way in which, you know, we already do that. We are already, you know, in highly complicated environments and very dangerous environments in the floor of the ocean and in space. You already have like, you know, you know uh, non-human intelligence machines and human beings interacting in very rich ways. So in some sense, I think the right thing to do is to imagine these kinds of hybrid forms of consciousness and to work on them because the opposite is go the the other thing that would happen is just the AI on itself is the the one who knows and we are just its little its little underlings because it's not going away the the computer intelligence is not going away no it is not so I think hybridization is paradoxically a more humanist uh, response in, in in a lot of ways. I just saw in that, I remember reading it years ago, a lovely little science fiction story by Frederick Brown about uh, the supercomputer being built, you know, and they 
switch it on and they say, ask the key question, is there a God? And then the lightning flash comes and fuses all the circuits so it can't be switched off. He says, there is now. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. Uh, uh, <laughs> now did did uh now there, well, i guess we only have a couple of minutes left but uh i'm curious about you know there's a certain stage in people thinking about synergy think people thinking about higher orders of mind of higher orders of organization of these sort of higher intelligences that at a certain point in the 20th century, people were looking at like technology and com communication networks and the globalization, and they said, that's it, that's what's happening. But now it doesn't necessarily look so rosy. How do you see this fragile but very potent idea of higher intelligence working? At, is it expressed in technology? Is it actually on another order, something more cosmological, or even something more natural, more biological? Is is the technolo technological forms of higher intelligence, are they more usurpers, demiurges in the Gnostic sense? <laughs> or is there still uh, something happening on a, on a higher scale that's reflected in the development of uh, network consciousness? Well... I don't, don't mind pretending to know some answer to this as long as you know it's I an thought act. maybe you had a good dream or something. Maybe you, had a, you knew another science fiction story. <laughs> no, for me, what comes to my mind, it's, it's just, I, I got too much of the style from Bennett because he does, people ask him strange questions, he'd go quiet for a while and come up with something weird. Um, so I trust, uh, trusted in that. And, and it is uh, something currently for me is this thing which we know the words for. There, there are many worlds and uh, many levels, and we're all used to this sort of thing, but for me it's becoming more and more real in the sense of uh, coterminous, in other words, coterminous uh, or parallel or mutual worlds. Uh, it's, again, going back to Benny, he was very keen on this. He had lots of hierarchies and schemes. He said, he always warned in the end, don't get stuck up there. He said, each of these have their role, you see, and, and part of understanding wisdom is, is knowing to each his own. What is it? You know, we, uh, we've got to have automatisms, example. You know. We've even got to have what people call bad emotions. Always, everything, so you've got to find what the purpose is. And so for me, uh, I think that's, so his idea of cooperation between the levels is, is right. And this is obviously not an answer, but I'm just thinking of a, a fundamental element, which is not only in Gurdjieff, but people are sometimes surprised in Gurdjieff, which to know that our idea of consciousness is uh, in a way fucked. I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's so askew. And I'm more and more going back to treating seriously what somebody like Gurdjieff says. He actually says this. He said, what you call consciousness is not consciousness at all. It is a fake. <laughs> See, most people don't like that, hearing that <laughs> at all. And he said, it's what you call your subconsciousness is a true consciousness. Now, I knew that years ago, but now I feel I begin to under really understand it. 
you know, it actually is completely upside down to the ordinary view. So the practical side, well, semi-practical side of all this for me about the higher intelligence, it only begins, it's concomitant with, um, I would say, uh, all these words, letting go, opening, these are no good. No, I always ask people, they say, if people go around and say, have an open mind, I say, well, how do you do that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of, if you open it too much, does it fall to the ground? Or what? You know, nonsense. People have these nonsense things. So what do I actually do? And so it is, um, I'm afraid it, it comes back to a theme which Graham Bennett had, and it's the kind of theme where I'm completely ashamed of myself in front of it, or I want to kind of deny what he's saying, it's too hard, and so on. You could hear said, the only thing which matters is humility. You know what? what is, you know, totally, I, I think we have to also be humble in that, in that we we're kind of out of time. So uh, I, oh, I did give you I gave you a toughie there at the end, but I think you you did a great uh, you did a great job of, of encouraging us to question consciousness uh, oh, and Jesus to open Jesus. up to uh, to humility. But uh, I think we got. I think we have to. Even now, it's happening. As you, you and I believe we're conscious, don't we? But it's an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, Tony, thanks so much for enjoy, uh, you know, enjoying this conversation on expanding mind. It was great to have you. Thank you, Eric. It's been a privilege and a delight and a joy. <laughs> and a joy. Excellent. All right, for all you out there, uh, keep your minds open. <laughs> <laughs>